1: Hello, and welcome to the Osher Ginsburg podcast. This is episode 116 with Robert De Castella. You can find him on Twitter at DEEKDeek207. Deek207. He's also on Instagram there. I'm Osher Ginsburg. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for joining me on the show. If you're new to the show, if you've got a new phone for Christmas or something, uh, just subscribe to the show using the podcast app of your choice. Um, you can also find me at osherginsburg.com. Um, you can also email me. Send Osher email at gmail.com. That's pretty much it. Hope your week was good. Uh, It's pretty hectic for a lot of people this time of year. A lot of stuff going on. A lot of people wrapping things up. A lot of people trying to get everything done before the holiday break. Got to get it all done. Some people are on holidays. Welcome. Relax. It's all you. Just chill. Sleep in. It's all good. Um, The kid graduated primary school this week, and that was awesome. The most awesome part about it, not only that, you know, she's a great young human and, and on her way to a life of excellence. But um the very final moment of their graduation ceremony was a song and dance number. Like we were in a teen movie with choreography and everything. And it was great. <laughs> it was really, really, really great. Um I've spent this weekend um doing something I've wanted to do for quite a while. I went and uh, got my open water diving certification, which uh, if you've seen people scuba dive, basically you're not allowed to hire gear uh, if you don't have a certification. So you've got to prove, yes, I won't kill myself. And then they give you the gear uh, so you can hire and get tanks refilled and things like that. You can't get those things done. Um, it's kind of just their way of protecting, putting a barrier to entry to scuba diving so um, you know people don't hurt themselves. Uh, But it was really great. The most excellent thing about it for someone who struggles with anxiety was that if you don't relax and breathe slowly and regularly, just keep breathing and relax and look at the fishes, uh, you'll die. So that's what I kind of really like about it, to be honest. Just the, if you've got to move slow, do everything slow, breathe, relax, relax. And that's pretty much the solution to every single one of the problems that you find underwater. Which was great. I really loved it. I think it's important to keep learning new things as you get older. I think it's important to challenge yourself. I think it's important to be prepared to to be prepared to suck at something as you get older, so you don't just continually go, "Oh yeah, I'm awesome." Like learn how to ski, learn how to bowl, learn how to crochet, a cross stitch, whatever. Um, doing something new, learning something new, helps your brain work. And um, I found it really great. I really enjoyed it. I saw some cuttlefish. I saw an octopus yesterday in Sydney Harbour. I was blown away with how much wildlife there is down there. In Sydney Harbour. It was really great. It was really, really, really great. Um, I've got to talk to you about episodes over the Christmas break, guys. So um, this Christmas, I'm attempting to unplug entirely from the interweb. Now, Audrey, uh, my girlfriend has been pretty awesome and come to me saying, listen, you are in your phone. You've got your face in your phone a lot. And I know you have a brain that kind of likes to do repetitive things and um, checking Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, shouldn't really be one of them um, because I might be in the room, but I'm not with them in the room and, and I've tried to control it myself, but I know from past experience that trying to control things myself sometimes doesn't work. So what I've gone and done is I went and bought like a $60 brick phone that I used to have like 10 years ago, 12 years ago. I've still got the texting skills, which makes me happy, but, uh, it's like a Chinese Nokia copy. But I'm not going to have my smartphone with me, I or I'll, I won't even have it on, I don't think. Like five people know this number. My girlfriend, my family, that's about it. Um, so over the Christmas break, that's all I'm going to have. I'm not going to have a laptop. I'm not going to release any new episodes, I'm, I think. I mean, is that okay with you? Will you be okay if I don't release new episodes? Um, Would you like me to release some best-ofs so your fancy new iPhone 6s and stuff that you got for Christmas you can listen to something new on? Or um, would you like me just to check in and just leave little two- or three-minute notes every Monday? Um, Let me know. Let me know. Send us your email at gmail.com or find me on Twitter. Um, Just let me know. But I'm looking – or I mean, I've had this phone for – I used it this weekend to not have my uh, smartphone with me. And already the I'm telling you the, the difference it's made to my well being and feeling about life and remembering things and seeing people and looking people in the eye and engaging in conversations has been pretty good. Um, yeah, a lot of it comes from my conversation that I had with Waleed Ali as well about disappearing into social media. Um, so it's a bit of an experiment. So let me know, and I'll, I'll, I'll do what everybody thinks. Just reach out and, and let me know. So uh, let me tell you about my guest today. Um, I did fanboy a little over this one. Robert DiCostella is an international sporting legend. He set the world record for the marathon in 1981, record that stood for three years. He has competed in four consecutive Olympic games. He took gold at two Commonwealth Games. He won the Boston Marathon, and he set a city-to-surf record. That's the largest timed foot race in the world. It happens in Sydney. You run from the center of the city to the beach at Bondi Beach. He set a city-to-surf record that stood for 10 straight years. So he's a pretty incredible athlete. But he's also a remarkable man who's focused his life after competition to helping others, not only through his time as a director at the Australian Institute of Sport, but now as director of the Indigenous Marathon Project. Now, if you've been listening to this show, you'll know that Australian Indigenous issues are very important to me. It's always a thrill when I can get a guest on who can help me learn more about these issues. But I believe it's an issue that is so great that, and we live in a time that we as a nation, as Australians, have a chance to actually make it right within our lifetime, if we want to. Um, so, I, I honestly, I, I I'm just so grateful that Rob came over. We had a cracking conversation. I hope it. Uh, Shed some light on some things you might not have talked about. Even if you've never run a marathon, there's stuff in this that you will be able to use for the rest of your life. You can find uh, Deke on Twitter and Instagram, uh, deke 207 DWK two o seven. You can also find out about the Indigenous Marathon Foundation, uh, which uh, contributes to the Indigenous Marathon Project at imf.org.au. imf.org.au. You've got to put the AU on there. You end up at a very different website otherwise. So uh, come to... Uh, the eastern suburbs of Sydney and uh, Bondi beach, where for some reason there was lots of helicopters. So sorry about that noise. Uh, but this is an afternoon with Robert D. Costello. Uh, here we are as the uh, helicopters hover over Bondi. <laughs>
2: Never a dull moment here. <laughs> Never a dull moment.
1: Robert DeCastella, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, Osher. Mate, yeah. welcome. Thank you. I'm so stoked. I've wanted to get you on this show for so long. Oh, well, yeah.
2: Well, thanks very much. Really,
1: really, really long time. Um, since uh, Dan McPherson actually first told me about what work you're doing.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah, I've really wanted to get you on here and, and have a conversation with you. So if it's all right, sorry, I'm just getting my questions up on my phone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd love to have a chat with you about you know what work you're doing and how you managed to do it, <laughs> if that's all right.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Cool, man. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, here we are in the – you've just got the binoculars out. You're trying to have a look at the, the helicopter that's hovering over there. It's got no markings on it, so you're not wanted for anything,
2: are you? No, no, hopefully. Maybe just waiting to give us a quick, quick flight back to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> is, this, uh, is this far from where you grew up? You didn't grow up in Sydney, did you? No, no, I grew up in Melbourne. All yeah.
1: right. Um, and your folks were fairly, uh, fairly active people, weren't they?
2: Oh, look, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, my dad dad got me into running when I was about, you know, sort of 13, 12, 13, 14, and um, both, both parents played a bit of just, you know, sort of club tennis, so, you know, sort of played a little bit of that occasionally on the weekends. Um, and really, you know, sort of came, <laughs> came mainly through uh, through my first coach, you know, my uh, Coach Pat Clohesy, who was a history teacher at, at the school I went to, and uh, we had a, just a, a great group of, of mates. Really, it was just a social thing that that I did, and got into cross country and distance running, and you know, sort of just gradually progressed from there. What's
1: your What's your parents' story? Did they Did they come
2: to Australia, or no, did their no. parents come? Um, no, my my mum's from a Scottish family, uh-huh. uh, and my my. Uh, on my dad's side we're French Swiss right so from from Switzerland um, my great-grandfather came out to Victoria in the early 1900s and uh, settled in the Yarra Valley and um, was involved in the the wine industry they had a big vineyard and and produced a lot of uh, you know uh, yeah. wines and sold them you know all through Australia and a little bit overseas I
1: you know I, I want to hear stories like that you know it would have been like essentially going to another planet from that side of the world to come to this side of the world.
2: Yeah. Completely yeah, different climate, completely yeah. different
1: people, everything.
2: Yeah. Well, he, my, my great-grandfather was sent out here uh, by his father and the deal was that he had to write a book when he came back. And he wrote a, a book called uh, The Australian Squatters, all, all in French. And it, um, it really, you know, sort of uh, romance, the, the Australian outback or the, the wilderness, you know, the frontier, Australian frontier back in those days, and um, supposedly was quite instrumental in positioning Australia in, in the Europeans' mind as, as somewhere, you know, somewhere beautiful and somewhere very special. There have been a couple of other uh, books and things written which, which were quite disparaging to, to the Australian life. Uh, or, the, or the continent and uh, and he he really um, got a lot of a lot of recognition and acknowledgement for the role that he played back in those days in terms of opening up Australia to to europeans.
1: we'll talk a little bit more about that later on, but it's that's interesting to hear that your family has a connection with uh, edges the, uh, the outback part of Australia for quite a long time.
2: Well, I mean back then it was it was uh, Lillydale.
1: Victoria, right. <laughs> but still. But look, which, honestly, yeah, was, yeah, that, when the roads ran out and the train track stopped, I yeah, mean,
2: yeah, I mean, it was still by horse and cart, to probably a fairly long ride from yeah. from uh, the city. Um, but you know, it was certainly it was no in no ways a remote community or, or yeah. anything where you know I've, I've been a little bit these last few years. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so when you you say you mentioned the name of a, of a particular coach, do you remember the first time? Do you remember the first time that you? Ran so far that your mates were like, "Geez, Rob, that's a long way. How do you do that?"
2: Uh, look, um, I was I was always too slow at the sprints, you know. Like, uh, and and the longer the event went, the better I got. Um, you know, I remember I don't know what I did, but I was being punished for something and told to run laps around the oval, and and you know, just ran and ran and ran, and I sort of you know became quite obsessed and wanting to prove a point. And I think, you know, sort of a few people raised their eyebrows at, at the fact that I was just able to, to run for whatever it was, you know, an hour or an hour, whatever, you know, back in those days. Um, but I always had that little bit of, of um, you know, sort of mongrel, I guess, to wanting to prove a point and get out there and, and push hard. And, um, and, you know, whether I was 13 or 14 or, you know, later on, it was always the same.
1: So during this show, having these sort of conversations with people, there always seems to be one person that almost gives, gives a person permission to, no, it's okay for you to be good at this. And it sounds like that coach was that person in your life.
2: Um, well, it was probably probably my, my parents, especially my dad. Yeah. Um, you know, I was brought up in this fairly strong, um, you know, sort of Swiss culture, um, even though we didn't speak French or, or any of the other Swiss languages. But um, he was the eldest son of the eldest son of the eldest son, and I was the eldest son. So I was always brought up with a, a belief that um, you know, I, was, I was special and uh, almost a, an expectation that I was going to do something significant. And I think that was a, a wonderful gift for my parents both to, to give me was that sense of entitlement to be successful and rather than being successful and almost feeling guilty or, or as though it's not something which, which sits comfortably, it was something which you know which I just understood was what I was I was meant to be doing i could i feel
1: sometimes as a culture we as australians we we, ha, we tend to be very apologetic when we do well uh,
2: yeah it's no big deal uh, yeah. yeah i think so and and self deprecating and and you know take the mickey out of each other and and ourselves and you know and, and that's all well and good but uh not when it, it undermines your um, your self-respect or your self-belief and your your courage to to get out there and and i've always you know with my kids always encourage them to to have a go you know the last thing you want to do is to look back and have regrets and and if you never get outside your comfort zone if you never push your boundaries you'll never know how far you can go and you know what's the worst thing that can happen well you know if you go overseas and try to make a, a career offshore and things don't work out well you know you come back you know, big deal, but at least you've had a had a go, and I think it's really important to to have that. Um, you know, whether it's an entre- entrepreneurial spirit or or just a you know sort of a, a self belief to to believe that you know you've you've got to get out there and you've got to push and you've got to uh, have the, the guts to, to, to give it a give it a crack.
1: When when your running started to become uh, kind of I guess more and more prominent, and you started to show that no, this could actually be something that you should pursue. Um, this was at a time in Australia when sport wasn't necessarily professional, uh, and to go and travel to different races and participate in different meets was, was expensive. Like how, how did you manage to, to do that sort of thing?
2: Yeah, look, uh, especially athletics. I mean, you know, back, back when I was just starting to, to break through to the international stage, it was still very amateur, you know, it was still the international amateur athletic federation. And, um, the Australian Amateur Athletic Union, and and um, you weren't allowed to make money out of the sport. You know, you were expected to to make it a, a lifelong commitment and, and dedicate everything to be good. But uh, you know, for you not weren't much allowed money at all. Yeah. It's like, it's for like for a the love, like it. yeah. lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's sort of that old British, you know, sort of uh, unless you you come from the um, aristocratic. Mm. Uh, group, then you're never going to be able to, to make a, a go of it. Um, and, you know, it was sort of a hangover from that, I think, those old days. But I was also fortunate to, to be around in the transition to acknowledge that to, to be successful on the international stage. And I think, you know, sort of the Eastern Europeans really really pioneered that level of commitment and dedication and the, the network of support that you needed to, to, to achieve. And, um, uh, and very very quickly, you know, Australia started to, to fall behind everyone else. Um, you know, the old Montreal Olympics back in 76 was the, the first Olympics that Australia didn't win a gold medal at. And, and that was because through the 70s, the world had moved on and, and it had become a, a professional, at least a, in terms of the approach, a very, very professional, strategic perspective that you had to take. And um, uh, and then you know sort of with the the opening of the Institute of Sport back in 1981, uh, there was that realization that Australia needed to to move ahead and and athletes needed to be able to make a career out of out of their their commitment and, and their passion and and you know I was fortunate to to be around when things changed. I mean in the early days, you know I had shoe contracts with uh, I think it was with Adidas back then, and I'd have one contract that the uh, athletic uh, Union would would have, and they would take a significant percentage out of it themselves. And then I had another contract that uh, that you know that my agent had, and they didn't know about. So you know it was a it was a real you know there was you know paper bags being passed full of cash under the table, and <laughs> you were racing in Europe, and you know getting extra airfares, and then having to cash them in to to cover your your living costs, and it was all sorts of fun fun and games going on back then. <laughs> Thank God it doesn't happen these days. <laughs>
1: wow. Wow. Um, you got to compete at the uh, 1980 Moscow Olympics. Yeah. What? Like speaking of going to another planet, I mean, that's the height of the Cold War. That's where like now computers are involved. Now we're sending robots to fight each other in space. That was a yeah. big scary time in the world. What yeah. was it like
2: getting over there? Yeah, it was pretty amazing and, and leading into to Moscow you know the the Russians had just inv- invaded Afghanistan, That's and right. there was a, a massive fallout, and uh, the US had had boycotted the the Olympics, and there was an enormous amount of pressure on on the Australian Olympic Committee to to do the same, and a number of sports, you know, like hockey, chose not to send a team. Um, luckily for for us, athletics decided to go ahead, and also luckily the AOC sent a team. Um, but you know, I mean, you know, sort of thinking back to to people like Darren Hinch and others who who were absolutely slaving in their criticism of uh, of myself and and other other members of the Olympic team going over there and. You know, there's still shit going on over in bloody Afghanistan. You know, I mean, nothing's changed since 1980 or you know the late 70s. Um, the the only difference is that it's us over there now instead of the Russians. You know, <laughs> so um, it's it's funny how things move on. But you know, to to go over my first Olympics in Moscow was uh, you know as a 23 year old, I think I was back then, and um, to to see the you know the to see the people, um, it was a an eye-opener for me because I'd always been brought up with the the listening to the the propaganda that was around about the the Iron Curtain and the Russians and USR and all that sort of stuff. And you get over there and you realise that the people are just like anywhere else in the world. They were so proud to have the Olympics in their country just like we were at the Sydney Olympics. And um, uh, it was a, a wonderful revelation to me that, you know, you can't, Listen to to all of the, the media and the, the propaganda that's out there, and and it's it's also was a revelation because it made me realise that you don't see it as propaganda when you're immersed in it, but when you pull yourself out and you go over and you look at it from another perspective, uh, you realise the the manipulation that that um, is you know probably as much cultural as as politically strategic. But um, you know, you've always got to be pretty, pretty objective and and make up your own mind.
1: People just people just want three square meals a day, and they want their kids to do a bit better than they did. It's pretty much universal, I'd say. Yeah, and
2: and look, you know, I think just about everyone's proud of their country. Yeah, you know, it doesn't matter what country it is. You know, if you if you've been brought up and and uh, and you live there, you have a an incredible sense of of uh, patriotism for it. And and you have something like the Olympic Games that brings the world, the youth of the world together, supposedly under the the banner and the beauty of of competitive sport, um, and the opportunity for you to to showcase your your country and your nation and your culture is something that that everyone should be proud of, and um, you know that the politics is a completely different part of it, and and that. Is not what you know. The people that I met over there were absolutely embracing, and and wonderful in their in their their beauty and their their uh, pride of of, uh, of their country.
1: Mate, sp- speaking of patriotism, Crikey, you at the eighty two Commonwealth Games. I lived in Brisbane at the time. <laughs> and I was eight years old. Yeah. You and your face and that moment of you crossing the finish line. That was like. The whole country was you. Like, did you feel the weight of that? Did you feel that everyone was like, yes, I had a part, I had a role in getting him over the finish line? Because that's – I mean, I was eight and I thought I helped.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's it's amazing that, you know, I still meet people like yourself and so many others, you know, sort of travelling around who who identify that moment as as something of real significance to them and, and um, they, you know, remember the run back along Coronation Drive and – the duel going past the Regatta Hotel and then finishing where South Bank is today. And and, you know, I think um, that's the beauty of of sports, the beauty of things like the Commonwealth Games is that the the whole country was just on this wave of, again, you know, sort of uh, patriotism and and pride in in our athletes. And um, it was, you know, it was great to to be a part of that. And it was wonderful to have the race unfold the way it did, where you know the the two Tanzanians went out at you know sub world record pace and were way in front, and then gradually I I pulled them back, and then you know the race I think started about six a.m., so you know breakfast television was just starting off, all of those breakfast shows, so people had switched on their TV to get an update from the day before, and the marathon was was in full flight, and and people just got got really you know sort of uh, yeah. glued to the the race unfolding and. I think for a lot of people, the realization that running 42k can actually be quite interesting, (laughs) rather than you know sort of God, I can't imagine just sitting there watching grass grow is probably more exciting than watching watching a group of people slogging it out for 42k. But you know that there are amazing tactics, and if you've got a good commentator that can really explain some of what's going on, it's not you know it's not that hard to understand. You know, running running is is one of the most fundamental activities that that our species have done and and do, and distance running is is such a big part of it.
1: I, I, it must have been like the the birth of that ability to broadcast a live TV signal from the back of a motorcycle.
2: Yeah, because I, it's, it's, it's I think that so, kind yeah. of technology
1: brought the race, brought us into the race, yeah. rather than a, a pedestal camera on the side of the road. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think the actual first one was the the Munich Olympics in '72, mm. and and that was the one that Frank Shorter won from mm-hmm. from America, and and it was exactly the same. I mean, it was the first time that that a crowd watching on on TV had been able to follow the race and actually see the the race and the tactics unfold, yeah. and I think that that played a huge role. In the uh, you know sort of the building of of a, a fun run culture in the US, the marathon running culture that took off through the the seventies and and the eighties, and um, and you know ten years later we had the Commonwealth Games here in Brisbane, and and we had that same that same technology and impact.
1: Yeah, the, there was one other win of yours that I mean, besides the Japan win, which was mind boggling, the uh, the eighty six Boston Marathon. that, yeah. I mean. Like the highest profile marathon, pretty much in the world. Yeah, and and you know, what what are your memories of uh, what are your memories of of that of that race? Because well, you know,
2: yeah, it was um, the background to it was was quite significant because um, as you said, you know, the Boston Marathon is is outside of the Olympics, the oldest marathon in the world. Uh, you know, when when the US sent their team. To the first Olympics, and they had the marathon. They came back and they said, "We want to have one of those." You know, this marathon is something special. So, so they that was probably in about 1896. So they they started the Boston Marathon, and you know there was a handful of people who ran the back then 26 miles from this little little town on the outskirts of Boston into finishing the city, and uh, and it has just. Growing and every year it has been held in you know, a bar, a couple, and um, and it has a significance in in our marathon history, which which you know is similar to Phidippides and the run from Marathon to to Athens. Um, so it's a it's a major event. Unfortunately, it had got caught up in the in the um, you know sort of the, that amateur same culture that we are talking about before you know it hadn't moved with the times marathons had had moved on and there was appearance money and there was you know there was television and there was major major promotion big prize money uh the african countries were starting to to come in through through the 80s and um and you know the marathon had moved from being that old school amateur type event to to being a, a major entertainment and and you know, almost or, or even back then, growing to be a participation event, and um, uh, Boston had lost its its position. Other marathons, like New York, and and like some of the big marathons, London, and and through Asia, through you know Tokyo and other places, had taken started to take over as the as the number one marathon. And um, a, a big insurance company, a big American insurance company, John Hancock. Came on board and saw what had happened, saw the commercial opportunity of of getting in on the ground floor with the Boston Marathon and and helping it to grow. So they basically came in, and and just set up a, a completely separate arm of the Boston Marathon that was the Elite, and they bought uh, the best athletes, and and that one of the first people they spoke to was me, and say so, and and they said, look, you know, we want to. Reposition Boston back where it should be, and I liked that, and I was really you know, sort of uh, committed to working with them to to help to to grow the the event and I, but I said, look, I'm not interested just in a short-term commitment from you guys. If you're going to get involved with Boston, it's got to be for the, the long the long haul because it's going to take a while to reposition it. 30 years on, which is thirty years since I won it um, next next April, they're still there. So Hancock is still the major sponsor, and Boston now is back where it should be at the fore of of the the significant marathons on the on the world stage and it was you know it was great to win it it was great it was my fastest time two seven and uh, and probably even more so it was wonderful to be a part of of repositioning uh, an event that is so important to to us as as marathoners
1: i've I'm not. I'm not going to lie. You know, I when I trained for my th- first marathon, I, I had that 82 thing in my brain. I was like, you know, that happened in Brisbane. That happened on the streets I grew up yeah. in. And I've done. A, I've done a few since. Uh, from your perspective, what percentage? What's the split between uh, physical discipline and mental discipline required for this sport?
2: Uh, look, I don't. I don't know that it's easy to to split it. I, I think they're so intrinsically linked. Um, obviously, the physical is absolutely critical you know you've got to you 've got to do the mileage you 've got to do the hard work and i don 't think enough of our guys are doing that uh, whether it 's you know physically they just can't can 't do it they get injured or break down um, so you've you have to train hard you know and you have to train hard for at least four years to to get close to to your best and that means you're you 're at your peak consistently training with no periods off, no injuries. Uh, you're going through all of the seasons, the, the cross-country season through the winter, the track season through the summer, the road race season sort of in between, um, and you're getting in those long runs, you, the tough training sessions. So it's the physical side of it is absolutely critical, and it's sad that every now and then you meet Runners who have got all of the work ethic and all of the commitment and all of the the mental side of it, but their body breaks down. You know, they just their body just can't can't hold together and do the the volume and the quality of training that they need to do to to get down to you know sort of that sub two nine two eight type marathons. Um, and that's and that's one of the cruel aspects of of running. Um, you need just to to be physical animal specimen to to do it Um, on the other hand the mental side is equally as important you know there are so many people out there that probably have that physical ability but don't have the work ethic and don't have the the patience and the and the and the respect for the marathon and the respect for the training and but the the belief that that they can they can actually achieve it so you know whether they they come and go. Whether they self-sabotage and and undermine their own best performances, um, so you know they're both they're both so closely linked. You know you need to to have fun. You need to be absolutely dedicated and obsessed, but not to the extent where you put so much pressure on yourself that you still you still can't enjoy it. You know, so it's that that fun, relaxed, crazy, fanatical obsession that you need to have. <laughs> How was he? He's a nice guy. He's fun, relaxed, crazy, fanatical. He's obsessed. I love him. Yeah, well, I think, I think that's you know, but all of the, the best marathon runners that I've ever met, uh, and trained with, and and known, aren't aren't crazy obsessed. You know, maybe except for one or two, but the vast majority of them are, are pretty relaxed. And and yeah. and you have to when you're going to be training for for four years, three hundred sixty five days a year. Um, you know you, you can't you can't put too much pressure on yourself
1: when you're when you are in that race mode and you are at that you know 18 mile 30k and you kind of mark where where do you look where do you look when you're seeing those guys in front of you and you're like jeez I'm, I'm if I push too hard I'm not going to make it but if i don't push I'm not going to get anywhere like how do you how do you find that focus how do you like push out the my hip hurts my shoulder hurts my neck hurts you know <laughs> how do you how do you get through that
2: well uh, you know that's what that's what it's about you know sort of that's that's the moment that you've been waiting for um you know the marathon is not about that first 30k it's about that last 12k and and that's when you find out who you really are and and that's the beauty of it and it doesn't matter whether you're running you know two, seven or you're running five seven. everyone hits the wall at 30k and and has to find something inside them to keep on going and um, uh, and it's you you know that's it rips and, and bears your soul and and that's when you know you you really know who you are. Uh, you had better have trained because training gives you the reserves to, to, to keep on going but everyone gets to that point in the marathon. And, and that's the beauty of it because there aren't too many things in life where we deliberately go to the start line of something like that, knowing that we're going to be exposed and, and have our soul opened up to ourselves. And um, uh, unfortunately in life, it happens. It happens through all manner of different things that, that hit us out of the blue. But there aren't very many things that give us the opportunity to, to prepare for that toughness and, and that commitment and that determination and that and staying positive. You know, you, you just have to have that positive self-belief to, to keep on going and that strength of mind to not allow those negative thoughts to, to, to come in.
1: Because ex- well, you mentioned is you're up against yourself in that and my, in my experience it's not the other people around me that I'm worried about. It's my own voice that sounds like me going, just walk, just walk, stop, eat something. Yeah. It's fine. You've made it this far. It's yeah. cool. You can do it next year.
0: Yeah. You
2: know? <laughs> and it doesn't sound like anybody else. It's my voice. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there, uh, there is nothing else after the finish line. You know, uh, there it is. it is all about getting to that finish line. And if you start thinking and planning and contemplating, you know, what you're going to have. For dinner after the marathon, or you start thinking about your next marathon, or you know, you, you start wondering about other things, then you've lost because because it requires you to have uh, a steel determination that is unrelenting, and um, and you know, that's that's what it's
1: about. Why is it? <laughs> why is it at 30k? Why do why, we're all different human beings yet? We all experience this thing at that certain amount yeah. of running. What does our body do at that point?
2: Well, uh, f- from a physiological perspective, you've basically run out of out of glycogen, or you've run out of your you know your fast energy sources, and and then you need to pull your energy from your fat rather than your carbohydrate stores, um, and it's much harder. It's like you know trying to suck water out of a, a tiny little straw as opposed to a, a great big hose. Um, it is just a lot more work to to get that energy, and that's. And that's why the, um, you know, your legs give way. It's why you know, hit the wall. Um, and, and even your brain, your brain works on sugar and, and carbohydrates. And so you, your brain also needs to, to get its, its energy from your fat stores. Um, so it's, it's not quite one or the other. I mean, you sort of, you know, you, you shift the emphasis of, of where your energy comes from. But you you basically, you know, you you run out of your your easy energy stores and and then it gets hard work.
1: Every time I see a, a closing ceremony of an Olympics, you know, and I've been fortunate enough to know an Olympian or two, I, I see there's that whole big field of people. There's all of the, everyone's waving their flags and all the athletes are down on the field. And I look and I wonder there's probably a majority of these people will probably never lace on shoes again. This is the last night they'll ever be involved in competitive sport um some athletes transition out of that 365 days a year of training singularly focused on this moment quite well Mm. others don't and we've all seen those stories did you because you you took over as director of the institute of sport while you're still competing did did, had you seen okay there's an effective use of me here on the track with these shoes on what am I going to do afterwards did you see that coming
2: uh, sort of yeah i mean it, it just sort of unfolded to to some extent but i think you know i was starting through from from about 1990 i was starting to have more injuries and you know even in in my third olympics uh, in seoul i had a lot of, of lower back and hip type problems and stuff so you know it was it was starting to get hard just to to maintain the training that i needed to do um, and you know the opportunity to to take up the director's position at the AOS came up, and uh, I'd already been living in Colorado for, for five years, and never really wanted to to live there forever.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I had, you
2: know, a couple of kids, and so it was time for, for me to, you know, to make that that transition. And I was fortunate that the AOS job was, was there and I was able still to, to train, uh, pretty, you know, pretty hard, uh, for an extra couple of years and went to, to Barcelona in 92 and still didn't run anywhere near my best, but it was still, it was a uh, hot day. It was, it was, a hot day and a big, a big, uh, a lot, of hills. Hill a lot of hills. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was good. It was, a it was a, a wonderful transition into, into life after sport and I was able, from my own personal experience, know what it took to be an elite athlete, uh, able to hopefully work with our head coaches um, and help them and support them to put in place and build a culture. Because, you know, I think as, as much about the culture that you create as it is about the, the athlete and the resources that they have, it's much harder to create that that culture of of courage and and self belief and uh, fanaticism, but you know also having having a little bit of balance in there so that there is you know there is an awareness that there needs to be life after sport as well um so f- you know for for me to work at the institute for the five years that I was there was was wonderful um it was leading up till the uh, announcement for the Sydney Olympics, and I was there for a little while after that announcement. And um, and um, for me, it was great. But I'm not a bureaucrat, and and working within a a large organisation and a, a department or a, a semi department culture was not not for me. So you know, I I was there for a while. It helped me in that transition, but then I I moved on.
1: So Just while, while you were there, I mean, it is the Australian Institute of Sport. For at one point, it didn't exist. Mm. Someone put up their hand and said, we're going to need this. While you were directed, did you find yourself having, having to defend it? Did you find yourself having to justify budgets and things like that and and tell people, look, it's important that we have this and this is why?
2: Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, constantly. You know, the, there was still and probably still is to some extent a, a, a culture that doesn't or a, an attitude that doesn't believe that there is merit in providing the resources and the funding to enable our most talented and and committed young people to to fulfill their their potential and their capacity and through that inspire hopefully the the nation and a lot of other young people to to be better and and that's what i saw the, the role of the institute as it's a it's about the pursuit of excellence it's about giving giving the most talented and dedicated uh, kids, because a lot of them are still in their teens and early 20s, the, the professional support and resources that they need, but also, you know, creating the coaching and the sports science and sports medical structures around, around the programs that are absolutely critical for, for success on that international stage these days. Um, you know, I loved the, the uh, cross-pollination between sports so when I was when I first went there, all of the sports were or most of the sports were under the AIS umbrella, and most of them were, were located in Canberra. There were a couple scattered around in, in other other cities around Australia, but the the cross pollination and cross fertilisation that occurred between the the coaches of different sports. So you had swimming coaches mixing with gymnastics coaches and mm-hmm. volleyball coaches and. And athletics, so there was a a wonderful, uh, you know, sort of just this this uh, culture that was was so strong. But um, when I was there, also there was a a decentralised push to to move the programs from the institute out to the sporting organisations, and and uh, I could understand the the theory and the philosophy, and I think you know sport. There was a, a catch, craze, sport-owned sports. Sport needs to be responsible for for what their sports do, and that means everything from the grassroots to to the elite. Um, I I didn't totally agree with with that because I thought we as a as a nation have a uh, have a responsibility to provide those pathways to to the talented kids, and sport needs to be involved, absolutely. But um, I you know I I just don't. I didn't quite agree with the philosophy and that philosophy still exists today um so you know it's not something that i subscribe to
1: you mentioned uh, something back there that was uh, really struck with me that that you want to build these athletes who so they can go on to inspire others because yeah. when you think about it the, the percentage of the population that will ever participate in these programs is, is minuscule yeah. but we can watch great cricketers on the television we can watch great netball games we can watch great swimmers and go yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. is that is that feeling in me the thing that you're working towards, or yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Never underestimate the impact that one person can have. You know, if you just work off numbers, you're you're missing it. You know, some of the greatest people in the world have been one person, and they've changed the course of the world, changed the the way we we look at ourselves and the, and the way we we the direction we go, and and that's what that's what high performance, that's what excellent performance and, and elite performance is is about. It's not about being arrogant. It's not about thinking you're better than someone else. It's, it's about um, the country providing the opportunity for, for people to excel and to have a culture of excellence. And through that, whether it's in arts or whether it's in business or in IT or research and education, it doesn't matter. It's just exactly the same culture. And and that's what we we need to, to have in in this country is is that um, you know that that culture of of sacri- being prepared to sacrifice everything, being prepared to walk over broken glass in bare feet to to do what you need to do, and um, not always very healthy, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know that's that's what I think we need to do, and that's what the AIS, and that's what elite sports and elite athletes should be doing is through their performance on the field but also through their performance off the field. They should be be sending that powerful message of not just being an elite sports person but being an elite person and, and hopefully inspire kids and families and, and you know, the, the country to, to be better. This is
1: what I wanted to ask you about. When you when you were at the – you competed at four Olympics. When you, you know, hung up the sneakers, you you could have gone, right, great, huge endorsement deal from Adidas. I'll open a chain of fitness centers and I'll sell uh, marathon programs online or buy fax or books or whatever, and I'll leverage this for my own personal gain. But from where I was able to look and find out about you, you leveraged that to help others. Where where did yeah. that come from? Where did the idea to wanted to to, to kind of give come from?
2: Uh, look, I think I think I was always um brought up probably from my family uh, with in a culture where um where you know you have when you have an opportunity to make a difference, you have a responsibility to make a difference. Um my my mum was a, a nurse and sacrificed so much for, for us so we could get a private mm. education. Um, you know, my dad, who had his first heart attack when he was in his late 40s and went on to run over 30 marathons and ended up dying halfway through a 30K training run when he was 73 uh, and and inspired so many people and helped so many people who were battling with heart disease and, and stuff. Um, you know, my brothers and sisters have all been in, a lot of them, in the health professions. So um, I... Um, i i grew up in a in a culture of being concerned and and being wanting to to contribute um and and you know i i just enjoyed it um you know i i think there's nothing better than to to see uh the legacy that you leave behind being passed on to to others after they've been uh, they've gone so you know it's it's the opportunity to you know sort of you know, we talk in IMP about our, the ripple effect. You know, you, you've got to you've got to create ripples. You've got to create waves, and 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 they have to have to create more waves. So you know, that's that's just the way I was brought up.
1: So let's let's get to that. What was the what was the inspiration behind the Indigenous Marathon Project?
2: Um, well, after I left the institute, I um I set up another charity uh, targeting kids obesity because I became and still am very concerned about the the growing levels of of uh, dysfunction and obesity um, and that and and that program is still ticking along although it's very very difficult area to to work in um, through that, I was also very aware of of the uh, the the plight of our indigenous, Australians, the the uh, gap in terms of life expectancy and incarceration and suicide and um, education and jobs and all, all of those health and social factors, uh, but never really knew how to address it or never even thought that I could. Um, and then you know, I had a, a phone call out of the blue from this guy, Matt Long, who uh, has a... Um, uh, advertising production company Good Oil here in in Sydney, and he wanted to do a documentary, and his dream was to to do this documentary. and He just run the city of the surf, and his brother had just run a marathon, and and he he phoned us up uh, indirectly through this other uh, documentary producer, Jen Peedom, and and they said, look, you know, we've got this idea. Uh, do you reckon Indigenous Australians, do you reckon Aboriginal men, can run like the Africans? given some of the hunting and gathering histories and the backgrounds and the success on the footy fields, especially AFL and other things. And it was a great question because we've never had an Indigenous athlete uh, succeed in, a, in an endurance sport. Great footballers, basketballers, sprinters, tennis players, all pretty explosive and, and fast. Uh, so, you know, and that was the, the genesis of the program that we started back in 2010 where we had those four Aboriginal men, uh, two from Alice Springs, one from Maningrida up in Arnhem Land and another guy from, uh, from the Kununurra and the Kimberleys. And those four guys believed in us enough to, to have a go and Matt followed the journey and did a, a wonderful documentary called Running to America. And and that was how the whole thing started. And I um, didn't really want it just to be a one a one year thing. I didn't want it to be just a, a documentary, and we shake hands and say thanks. It was. Was it he was aware fun. of
1: what you did with Boston? Does he know that you're not going to let go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: maybe not. But uh, and and even back then, you know, sort of, we Matt and I were talking about ways that we could, you know, create a legacy for for running to America. And and I think the big thing for me was being on the finish line in new york in 2010 and seeing those four guys finish and and seeing how how physically exhausted they were knowing what they'd each been through through the the preceding seven or eight months the the uh, social and the the challenges that that they'd faced in their families and communities but then also seeing the incredible pride that they had but also the the pride that their families and communities shared with what they'd achieved and and then you know sort of the the penny drop that this was an opportunity to to do something pretty significant and and we got some extra funding out of out of the Department of Health to kick it off and keep it going through two thousand and eleven and and twelve. and you know we've just come back from New York after our sixth sixth year, and we've now got instead of having four, we've now got fifty three graduates and men and women and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island and from remote communities and big cities and, and regional regional towns. So it's a, a wonderful cross-section of Indigenous Australians and an incredible selection of amazing young Australians.
1: So you you, you pick a squad, you then train for, uh, what, nine months?
2: Yeah, we're, we're in recruitment phase at the moment. So December, January, we we recruit disseminate posters and information and, and, uh, and flyers and stuff all around Australia. And uh, people can log onto our website, register their expressions of interest, 18 to 30-year-olds, uh, Indigenous Australians. And, um, and then we, we select a squad in, in about um, uh, March, February, March, uh, we meet every one of those applicants. Uh, this year we had over 150 applicants and we selected a squad of 11. And and the things that we look for are two things. One is, you know, why are they doing it? You know, what is their reason? What is their story? What is their purpose? And they've got to convince us that it's pretty powerful. We t- spoke about what keeps you going at 30K. Well, they've got to convince us that they've got enough motivation that when they ask themselves, what the heck am I doing this for? They've got a damn good answer. And the second thing we look for is their, their capacity to drive change. And that's their personality and that's their their character. And that's, you know, sort of that sort of intangible little quality that they have, that spark that we believe that they, that we can work on, but we can turn it into. Something that's going to to get that message out in a really powerful way. They so change
1: outside of themselves.
2: Um, change, yeah, yeah. They've got to drive change. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're not just about, or we're not about taking a group of Indigenous kids to New York to run a marathon so that they can get a medal and and get patted pat, patted on the back. We're about using the marathon to to drive and address health and social issues that we as a as a nation. Uh, as Indigenous Australia and also as Australia face. And, and we do that um, by working with these, these squad for six months. So most of them have not done any or very much running. In six months, we get them to run a marathon. We have four training camps over that six-month period in different parts of Australia. And they, they all have to pass a Cert three in fitness, um, and they have to convince us that they're physically ready, that they've done enough training, that they haven't got badly injured. Um, six weeks before, we have our final camp in Alice Springs, and they have to run 30K, which is the longest they've ever run, and they have to have done all of their coursework for their, their Cert three to, to qualify to come to New York. And, um, and that's just a start. When they run New York, they, they demonstrate to themselves and to so many others that they have this incredible strength and capacity to do so much more than what they ever thought possible. Um, And it's the pride. You know, you will never look after yourself. You will never make an effort to improve your life or the life of your family if you feel as though you're worthless. If you feel as though you have no value, why would you make an effort to get a job or to get off the smokes or to exercise or to, to be better? Because it's hard work. You know, it is hard work to, to do all of those things. So you've got to believe in yourself. You've got to have that self-respect to, to be able to push yourself. And that's what running does. Running, every time you go for a run, you come back and you feel good about yourself because it's hard. Every time you do a marathon, your first marathon is one of the, the, those you know, sort of um, uh, special things in your life that you'll remember for the rest of your life, your first marathon. And and you remember it because it's hard, and it's that battle we spoke about from thirty k onwards against you and your spirit and your soul, and and that's what we're looking to fuel, uh, so so that they can go on and and change their families, change their communities, set a, an incredible inspirational example and be role models for for other Indigenous Australians, and and also change the perception that. Uh, a lot of non-Indigenous Australians have of our Indigenous Australians. Um, you know, we, there's a lot of talk now about um, the recognition in the Constitution and, and our you know, sort of wondering when we're going to finally become a republic and what is our identity as Australians. And I think our Indigenous heritage and our Indigenous culture is a national treasure. You know, we are one of the few countries in the world, few nations in the world that still have a beautiful rich strong indigenous culture and heritage and and it's a it's a treasure and it's something which all of Australians need to cherish and be proud of not not be ashamed of we need to be proud of it unfortunately most of the stuff that we see and we hear is all a negative stuff all of the talk about the gap and and everything just reinforces the the negative stereotypes so we need positive stories we need inspirational Examples of, of what Indigenous Australians can can do, and that's and that's what we're doing.
1: What's what's the reception once these guys and girls get back from New York City? Once they get back to their communities, and from what I know, some of these are communities that you can't drive in and out of in the wet season. There's just there's no sure. roads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the so fairly isolated? Yeah. What's the reception when these folks come back?
2: Oh, look, they they're they're, um, they're acknowledged as in a lot of cases having earned the right to go through the next level of ceremony. Uh, we, after the marathon, after New York, we go back to the communities and we do a special return to community graduation ceremony. And this is an opportunity for us again to to celebrate what they've done uh, in New York, but also just having the courage, first of all, to put up their hand and then continue on that journey. And And we want the community to be proud of what they've done. But we also want our graduates or our runners to to thank everyone in the community who have supported them and helped them. So this our little graduation ceremony is two things that we want to showcase and put them up on a pedestal. But we also want them to acknowledge and thank and and show respect to everyone who's supported them on that journey, because it's not just all about them. Um, and and you know we just. Uh, we're up in uh, Elko Island, which is up in remote East Arnhem Land, a little island off off the coast. And we've had three women from from gallowinku this little community up there, each of the last three years, and and each of those women have been acknowledged within their community and within their culture as having done something of significance, and have now been put. Through because of the marathon, because of what they've done through through IMP through our foundation, they have now been put through that next level of, of ceremony within their culture, and it's it's a incredible thing for 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 us or for me to to see the way that that the culture has embraced and acknowledged what what they have done through through the marathon and through running, and I think. They, um, you know, they're desperate for, for finding this next generation of young leaders to, to come through. And, and, you know, our, our graduates have, have demonstrated through the hardest of hard things to do, running a marathon in six months, um, they, they've demonstrated some amazing qualities that, that the elders also respect.
1: There must be some incredible wisdom up there in those communities.
2: Yeah. Look, I, and um, you know, I don't pretend to understand, and I'm, you know, by no means um, <laughs> anywhere near being an expert, or but the the uh, the language, the the culture, um, the you know, it, it's two sided. I mean, on one side it's beautiful and rich. On the other side, it's sad to to see the way it's been eroded, and and uh, the. Um, the issues that that our non-indigenous culture, our European and uh, our white culture, has brought in there, has is really sad to see, and it's a great challenge for us as a nation is to is to find a way to to um, you know progress both. We you know we obviously as the white culture are the dominant culture on this in on this country, uh, but we also as the dominant culture need to acknowledge or it's up to us to decide what place we want our Indigenous culture, Australia's Indigenous heritage and our values, values that have enabled Indigenous Australians to to survive on this continent for tens of thousands of years. You know, we're now talking about the environment and worrying about, you know, sort of global warming and whatever. Well, you know, Indigenous culture has, has a, a, another complete Perspective and depth of connection to the environment that we haven't even got close to, and and their values, which I think we as a nation can only be better for, the connection to family, you know, Indigenous family, and and the linkages and the responsibilities and the obligations, uh, and the and the respect is is huge, and and I think. Uh, I would love for us, you know, for as as families even just to as parents, as fathers, to have a, a greater understanding and, and a sense of responsibility and obligation to to our families. Now we all talk about, you know, oh, you know, the best day of my life was when my, my kid was born and but a lot a lot of it is true, but it's still just scratching the surface when you compare it to indigenous culture. And there's so many other things which are the same. And, and I think I would love for us as a nation to have an opportunity to have a greater appreciation and understanding for. And I think, you know, we've seen it in other countries. We see it in places like New Zealand where where Maori culture is, is now something that all New Zealanders are proud of. And, and I think, you know, I'd love for us one day for Australia to, to be as proud of our Indigenous culture as New Zealanders are of theirs.
1: It'd be a, a wonderful. I was when I uh, I did the arias the other night, and um, I did the Welcome to Country at the start of the show. And I uh, I called up a friend and I uh, an Indigenous friend and I said, "Listen, I can say hello, goodbye, yes, no, where's the toilet, and I'm vegan in about seven countries, seven languages, yeah. except the language of the country I live in."
2: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. She's from Torres Strait, so she said, "Like, I'm, I'm not Gadigal, I can't help you there."
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but you know, and we scratched around. We. We finally found someone, but it was after the show. By the time, by the t- it took us two days, <laughs> by the time we got there, it was, yeah. up, it was after the show. But that, yeah. that I can't do that. Yeah. You know, it it, yeah. it really, really dawned on me that like really, like as a as a European, as the white culture in this country, as guests on this land, we you know we know so
2: little,
1: yeah, so little. And in the in the yeah. scope of history, how long we've been here is a yep. click, click of a finger.
2: Yep.
1: It's a click of a finger. Yeah. And yeah. you know the when I think about how the Europeans saw the Indigenous people when they first arrived, I think the note from the boss was, oh, look, if they're not civilised, um, don't worry about it. Take it. It's yours. Mm-hmm. So they turn up and they couldn't see agriculture, which to them meant civilization. They couldn't see books, which to them meant civilization. They couldn't see what they recognised as forms of, I don't know, worship or organisation or, or a hierarchy or structure or mm-hmm. law or government. So oh, they just... You know, but when you think about that, these people naked mm. could survive in this most rugged of continents, and would walk through the bush. And for them, it's like, oh, I'm basically in coals. I yeah. can eat that, drink that, sleep yep. there. Yep. You know, the as you mentioned, the connection that they have, these people have to the land, is mm. beyond the spiritual. Mm beyond the spiritual and so i've only scratched the surface when it comes to being out on communities and i I mean and for you it must be like every time you go out there must be just another thing just blows your mind
2: yeah and you and you know we have to learn to listen you know we have to learn to to just sit and wait and and listen and try to understand and you know a lot of us aren't very good at doing that <laughs> we always even when we're listening, we're thinking of the next question. <laughs> you know, so we're moving on all the time. And um and you know, we're we're so we're so, I guess, you know, sort of punching the clock all the time and onto our next thing and and whatever. And um uh, there's a lot that we can <laughs> we can learn and uh so it should be should be a good journey for us as a as a nation.
1: <laughs> is that is that the thing that we can do as a because there's probably there's people listening to this you know they you know people that live in a suburb they've got a couple of kids they you know one income they're trying to get it together. Um, I'd love to help. Uh, kids need uniforms. You know. Yeah. How can people like that? How can just kind of regular everyday Australians help?
2: Look, I, I don't know. It's hard, uh, and and that's the position that I was in before we started IMP. You know, back in two thousand and ten. I didn't know what to do, and then all of a sudden, you know, the, this this opportunity to use running and use the marathon came along. Uh, um, I think there is an obligation on our indigenous leaders and our indigenous people to to teach, and to to tell, and to share. Um, and I think many of them are very willing and enthusiastic to do that. Um, so i think that that can be a positive thing so we need to find ways to to have that dialogue and to to listen and and to to learn um you know there are some amazing things happening around the country it's difficult here in australia because we have so many different indigenous nations mm. so many different languages and and each you know sort of as you say you know you you can't use uh, you can't say a language as a welcome or as an acknowledgement in one one country that comes from another so you know there's a it's not not an easy thing to do but i think all australians need to to um understand the their indigenous nation where they were born and, and where they where they live and i think that's you know that's a good start and then hopefully you can just you know go from there
1: what can people listening do to to help you out of the Indigenous Marathon Project.
2: Oh, look, I think there's there's lots lots of ways people can can help us. I mean, you know, sort of going through our website and just looking at the stories, looking at the profiles of our of our graduates, looking at the the other elements to to what we do now. I mean, you know, the New York Marathon is is still the high profile thing, but we have a range of deadly fun runs that we're putting in place across the country. Uh, that our graduates in communities are, are organising and delivering. And uh, we we just in 2015 kicked off this Father's Day Warrior Fun Run uh, here in, in Sydney in Centennial Park and it was also held in a couple of communities. And that's that's about um, acknowledging the the role that men have as noble warriors. And by noble warrior, I mean someone who, who protects the family and someone who provides for the family, and someone who teaches the family. And, and I think there's so much negative stuff about what men can't do these days, uh, and that needs needs to be addressed. You know, I mean, there's a lot of men doing things that they shouldn't be doing. But we need also to promote and showcase and celebrate the good attributes and characteristics and what it is to be a good man and a good father and that's you know that 's our father's Day warrior run, and we want that to to grow to be something which is similar to the Mother's Day classic which you know is is held in hundreds of locations across the country where families and grandfathers and uncles and brothers and sons all come out with their families and and participate and and show that and and through that um, and through a connection with with indigenous communities um, who who are warriors um and and be able to to promote through that what it is to be a, a good Indigenous warrior and, and a provider and a protector so that's another thing that we've we're, we're rolling out um, we're we're looking to provide pathways and opportunities for our graduates you know we've got 53 at the moment hopefully in years to come we'll have thousands and we want them to to go on and to support them to start small businesses, to to go to university, and whether it's in nursing or whatever they're interested in, um, to set up their own running programs and coaching squads. Which we've got six of our graduates now who've got their own their own running squads around the country, and and are helping people in community and, and cities to get out there and exercise and get healthier and lose weight and feel proud of themselves more important. So, you know, there's a lot of things that are taking place. You know, we're, we're a charity. You know, we're, we're a, uh, a DGR or a tax deductible charity. And pr- predominantly our funding comes from, from government, from the Department of Health and Indigenous Affairs that we're incredibly grateful for. Uh, but we need to do more and And we need donations, we need people to to come on and and to support us to participate in running events. We've got a, a footprints program where people can sign up on our website and and participate in events like the city of the surf and join us and meet our squads and and run with us. So there's lots of lots of ways that um, uh, people can support the work that our foundation is doing, but I think also, just to have that open mind and to look at our graduates and and to to be proud as Australians of what they have done and and what they are continuing to do I think you know sort of if if people can see what we've done through our foundation and what our graduates are doing is something that makes them proud to be Australian uh, that's probably the most important thing.
1: Do you see one of your graduates or one of the people that your graduates train? making an olympic
2: squad. Oh, look, absolutely it'll it'll happen. Uh, it'll it'll be probably one of the the kids that our graduates are inspiring at the moment. Uh, it'll take, you know, it'll take 10, 16 years or something for for that to to filter through, but um, absolutely we're seeing some amazing talent come through. Um, the ability of a of a distance runner is is that they respond to to training they have a physiology. They have a body that responds to the training that you do. Indigenous Australians have never done any endurance training. So expecting them to get up to the elite level is is, is too hard. In six months, we take people who've never run before and get them to run a full 42K marathon. So they have a physiology that responds to training. That's, inc- that's incredible. Just for anybody, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. And we've had people, you know, the women have to run 3K at our tryouts in, you know, February, March. And we've had one woman in particular who who did a 3K tryout. Six months later in New York, she ran the full 42K at a faster pace than what she did a 3K at. So so their ability to respond to training is is absolute. And, um, and through that, you know, we know that eventually we'll produce one of those champions to go and represent Australia at the Olympics, and uh, and that's you know you've got to you've got to start off with the with the right physiology and and the right physiological attributes, but then you also need to have the mental toughness. Um, what I've seen, and part of the massive respect that I have for our graduates, is that they have a toughness and a determination to to drive change. You know, they've got to a point where they've just had a gutful of, of what they've been through, what they've experienced, what their family has experienced, and, and they have the courage to put their hand up and say, enough's enough. Change is going to start now and it's going to start with me and, and I'm going to, to, to drive it. And that's, you know, that's the sort of people that we're, we're looking for because they then have, have the ability, the mental ability and the mental toughness to, to get out there and do what they need to do to, to make it right to the very top.
1: Not everyone who's listening is going to run a marathon. Not everyone who's listening is probably even like running a 5K that they're just trying to get to that. But everyone that's listening is going to face their own wall. They're all, everyone's going to face that thing that their voices are going, just just quit, just quit, just put it down, stop it, yeah. turn around. What would you say to those people?
2: Well, one of, one of my favourite quotes is a, um, a Danny Green quote, which is like um, it takes a second to quit and a lifetime to forget. <laughs> so don't have any regrets. Don't quit. <laughs> Just keep on going. Just keep on putting one foot in front of the other. It feels as though you're never going to get there. Hang on. Every step you take is a step closer to the finish line and eventually you'll get there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> mate, I can't even believe that you're in my house we're having this conversation, Robert. It's just been, uh, it's just been amazing. Uh, we've got to get you involved with November, mate. That thing's a classic. Yeah,
2: yeah. I'll, I'll have to, I have to get some tinting for it. I mean, no, it's no, it's
1: brilliant. <laughs> when you run the, when you run the Commonwealth Games, we're like, look at that guy. That's a moustache, man. <laughs> good on you. Asha. That's a good one. <laughs> hey, right. thanks, man. I'm going to take your photo, okay? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Cool, man. Thank yeah, you.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: That was Robert D. Costello. You can find him on Twitter at dwek 207 He's also on Instagram there. And uh, for more information on how to help with the Indigenous Marathon Project, imf.org.au. Thank you so much, very much for listening. Thanks for a fantastic year. Let me know what you think about the new episodes over the break. Um, I'll do what you want. Um, well, well let, me, let me know what you want to do about episodes over the break. I probably won't. I won't. I'll tell you right now, I won't put new episodes up. Um, but if you want reruns, let me know. If you want me to just check in and say, Hey, let me know. Um, if not, if you're cool with me just laying low, um, that's pretty much what I'm going to do, but I'll tell you all about it when I get back. I promise. Okay. So, um, have a great week. Uh, if Christmas is your thing, have a fantastic Christmas. If you're from one of the other monotheistic religions, enjoy the serenity. Um, go and see some movies. If you're a Taoist and you own a restaurant, enjoy the business. Uh, Enjoy the cricket. Enjoy the break. Read a book. Hug a friend. Do something new. Um, Yeah. Have a great time with the people you love. All right. Thank you so much for a wonderful year. Your support this year has given me more than I ever could have imagined. And the way that you reach out and communicate to me on email and is just the greatest so have a wonderful wonderful break love you for listening until we speak again which won't be a few won't be long maybe two and a half three weeks um, sleep well sleep in or get up early and do stuff i don't mind but as long as you sleep well and
2: dream of beautiful things
1: have a great time
0: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees.